Hey, my name is Andrew Robinson. I'm an assistant producer on the Political Climate Podcast, and this episode is brought to you with support from Lyft. Lyft is continuing its leadership in creating a cleaner, healthier, and more equitable future with a bold commitment to reach 100% electric vehicles used on the Lyft platform by 2030. The shift to EVs will create opportunities for drivers to lower their costs and keep more of their earnings. Transportation currently accounts for the largest portion of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S., and Lyft is committed to leading the way to decarbonize its platform through vehicle electrification. Learn more at liftimpact.com electric. Politics is about friction. And this is, I can't, with the exception of the pandemic, I can't think of a place where there's more friction between Joe Biden's views and Trump's views. And so it's a joined issue. They're going to fight about it. Take your hamburgers away if you let them into office. I don't think the American public buys that. Uh, but, you know, it'll, it'll be good. We'll have this debate. Few people have as much experience working in modern democratic politics as John Podesta. From Senate staffer to White House chief of staff, progressive think tank founder to presidential environmental policy counselor, campaign manager to climate action advocate, John Podesta has seen a lot. So what does this veteran democratic operative think about the current state of climate politics? Why is he picking a fight with Facebook? What does he think about ending the Senate filibuster? And how would he counsel a President Biden to create energy and environmental policy? Plus, who's his preferred Democratic VP pick? All of that coming up on this week's episode of Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, your host, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media, and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And in a moment, you'll hear from my co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbut, former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under Secretary Stephen Chu and current partner at Boundary Stone Partners, as well as Shane Skelton, former energy advisor to Representative Paul Ryan and current partner at the consulting firm S2C Pacific. You'll also hear from John Podesta. Podesta's held numerous key roles in U.S. government and politics over the course of his career. He served as a Senate staffer and then went on to serve as White House Chief of Staff to President Bill Clinton. After that, he went on to found the Center for American Progress, a progressive think tank that's become a central player in the Washington political ecosystem. In 2014, Podesta left CAP to become a counselor to President Obama, where he focused on climate and energy issues. There, he oversaw the administration's bold go-it-alone strategy, which resulted in aggressive carbon emission standards for power plants and new vehicle fuel economy rules. John has a tremendous understanding of how to make things happen and how to make things work in an administration from the perch of the White House, former State Department climate envoy Todd Stern told The Atlantic in 2014. Flash forward to 2016, when Podesta served as chair of Hillary Clinton's campaign for president, which, as we all know, didn't quite work out. And now, looking back, Podesta's go-it-alone strategy on climate has been largely dismantled by the Trump administration. This year, Podesta's looking for greater success. He's in action again, this time working to unite Democrats in the lead-up to the 2020 election, and putting climate change back at the center of his work as a prominent member of Climate Power 2020. The organization, created by seasoned Democratic leaders, says that it's pushing candidates up and down the ballot to campaign aggressively on climate solutions and to put the Trump administration on defense for ignoring experts, refusing to believe in science, surrendering the U.S. government to big oil executives, and gutting public health protections. Their words. Now, we cover a lot of ground in this interview, hearing stories from the past and getting Podesta's outlook on the future. We start with a moment in his long and esteemed career in democratic politics that you might not know about. The point in time when he taught a course at Georgetown Law School with renowned Republican lawyer Richard Leon. One last thing before we go on. If you haven't yet, please hit subscribe on Political Climate. That way you can catch all of our episodes coming out each and every week. And with that, here's our in-depth interview with John Podesta. 
There we go. Okay, excellent. Hello. So you know Brandon, I understand. I do know Brandon. <laughs> and nice to meet you, Julia. And yeah. nice to meet you, Shane. You nice to meet you, uh, John. I'm sorry you've had the uh, displeasure of knowing Brandon for longer, but hopefully we'll <laughs> we'll be able to up sort of the average personality on the on the call here. <laughs> Did Brandon tell you he was my student? Well, we're going to get did. into that. He's actually, uh, he gave us a little background, which is awesome. And then he found himself ensnared, it seems. Yeah, because of you, Shane, and your bullshit fake scandal. <laughs> okay, great. Well, this is a perfect launch point, actually. So for our audience, we are delighted to have John Podesta on the line. Thanks for joining us. And as was just alluded to there, Brandon knows uh, Mr. Podesta from having studied with him. So I'm going to hand the mic over to you, Brandon, and tell us a bit about the background there. Sure. This will be a little bit of a long wind up, but I think it's it's worthwhile. Uh, for our listeners, I am more excited about this episode today than any episode we've ever done on this show uh, because John uh, is like a personal hero to me. When I was young, I all I knew is I wanted to get involved in politics and make a big difference in the world, and I had no idea how to do that. So I'd read all these books. I read All Too Human by George Stephanopoulos. I read the Republican books, you know, Ed Rollins' book. Uh, and then I showed up to Georgetown Law School uh, in 2001, I think, and learned that John Podesta was a professor there. He was a hero of mine. Uh, and so I just wanted to get into his class, and I heard it was hard. Uh, so one thing I did to increase my chances, he probably doesn't even know this, is that uh, there's an auction at Georgetown Law School to raise money for the school. And one of the things they auction off is dinner with John Podesta because he's like a world-class Italian chef. Uh, and I had no money, but I um, spent every dollar I had in my checking account to win that auction and then worked as a Westlaw representative filling uh, printers up with paper for many months after that uh, to get into this dinner with John Podesta. And the only thing that he'll probably remember from it uh, about me is that I showed up in crutches uh, because I had torn ligaments in my uh, ankle from playing basketball earlier that day. Do you remember this? I do. <laughs> and. And the the big question is, how was dinner? Yeah, it was amazing. It was there was a, there was a, <laughs> a menu all in Italian. It was one of the best dinners I ever had. Uh, so you fast forward, I I got into the class, and the class was called Congressional Investigations, and the model was very similar to our our podcast, uh, where it was bipartisan. Uh, John partnered with a uh, famous Republican lawyer who became a federal judge, Judge Leon. Uh, and so the spirit of this bipartisan, um, you know, approach uh, had great influence on me. Uh, and then you fast forward a few years after that, and uh, John was so gracious always with his time. Uh, I didn't really know what a mentor was. Um, I didn't know, you know, how to like make these decisions. And John was always so great with his time. Uh, and I went to him when I was thinking about joining the Obama campaign in February of 2007, uh, I was practicing law as a second year associate at a corporate firm. And I was scared to make the leap because uh, I'd worked for all of these liberal uh, candidates uh, who kept losing. And I'd worked for Bill Bradley. I'd done the presidential thing before. And I went to John and I asked for his advice. And it's advice that I pass on to everybody. Uh, he said, look, this decision is really easy for you. When you wake up tomorrow morning, do you want to be in your law office? You love the law, you're practicing law, uh, or do you want to wake up tomorrow morning in New Hampshire, you know, fighting your guts out with these, you know, people you believe in? I walked in the law firm the next day and quit my job and moved to New Hampshire and then achieved all these things I read about in these books that I didn't think would be and available. And single-handedly elected Barack <laughs> no, Obama. No, no. <laughs> but Changed the arc of history yeah. forever, yeah. Yeah. So for everybody's happy about that, except his parents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You were the only one that advised me to make that decision. It turned out so well. And it's why I always take, you know, coffees with every young person uh, to who asks for advice, uh, because John always did that for me. And I'll be eternally uh, grateful for it. So here's the transition to our show. I want to know from you. Uh, we did this class, you know with Judge Leon and the Republican Party back in 2002 is very different than it is today. What are your thoughts on the current state of the Republican Party and, you know, bipartisanship? Because uh, last week we had a, you know, we tried to emulate your model of your class. Last week we had a great show. Shane provided a great perspective on Biden's plan. Uh, you know, we try to have some fun. We try to, you know, uh, find common ground. Uh, but then, you know, when I turn on the news at night and I see, what the Republican Party is doing generally on the pandemic, um, on race, on climate change, I wonder if it's even pointless to try. So what do you think about the current state and, 
uh, and this model that we're all attempting? Well, I, uh, it's a great question. And I think uh, I'm going to have to give you a two-part answer. I think if you look at the congressional party, uh, and you have to say it's the party of Trump, they have essentially stopped being a check on Trump. They're afraid of him. Uh, they kowtow to him. Uh, and they never stand up to him. You know, there's maybe Mitt Romney's an exception to that. And that, and it's hard to count number two on that list. Uh, the Times had an interesting article saying that, uh, the Republicans, uh, who have at least challenged Trump a little bit all have a history of being from families that go way back in Republican politics. And they cited, uh, Liz Cheney, uh, Larry Hogan, for whose father was a congressman, and on the Nixon uh, Watergate impeachment committee, uh, and uh, and Romney. But for the most part, I think if you look at the congressional side of, of the House, uh, they're just terrified of him, terrified that he'll tweet at them, terrified that, uh, they're, that they're trying to carve a course which is maybe even on uh, COVID sort of sensible, uh, but that if they get crosswise with him, that he will lower the boom on him and that, and they will uh, lose that, you know, sort of core right base uh, that he has so captured. And so even on things like race, uh, they're afraid to challenge him. I don't think that's true across the board with Republicans. I mentioned Hogan the governor of Maryland. Uh, and I think if you look at people, um, uh, whether, and again, this is whether you're talking about the protestants in, at, in the wake of the George Floyd murder, or you're looking at, uh, how he's, uh, dealt with COVID-19. There's a little bit more at the state and local level. I think you see a little bit more willingness to say, wait a minute. I'm a common sense conservative. I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to try to separate myself from him. But uh, I think for uh, he's had a profound effect uh, on his core voters and therefore on Republican elected officials. John, this is sort of a follow up to that, and I have to change my question because because um, of your answer, but. Brandon does a great job indulging me, um, even though he disagrees with sort of everything that, that I hold dear, politically speaking. But you've been doing this for a long time. You've seen a lot. You talked a little bit about how there is a difference between the elected Republicans who are currently sitting in Washington and sort of the party writ large and the ideals behind it. Um, so are you comfortable, as, as Brandon is, sort of saying, we can't, let's talk about climate since we're, we're doing the podcast about climate. We can't do the things we want to do as long as these people, you know, participate, as long as they exist. The best way to achieve our goals is to kick their butts in the ballot box, uh, get rid of the filibuster and just determine that one party rule is the way to go. Uh, I don't ever believe that. I try to see that the second side of things and I try to use context and evaluating sort of any current political dynamics. So I, that's, that's a run on question, but I guess it's, do you think there's value um, longer term and trying to not just view your party as the solution and the other party as the problem, but looking for ways to, to solve problems. And do you think, because you've seen this several times, people tend to view today through the most intense possible lens without a full context of history and what came before and what will come after? Or do you think this moment right now just is that intense comparatively to what you've seen in the past? Well, certainly compared to what I've seen in the past. You know, I started on the Hill uh, in 1979. Uh, working for Pat Leahy, uh, who was then a young senator. Now he and I are both old, but um, and he, you know, he's the longest-serving. Uh, I guess he's the longest-serving senator in 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 the Senate, Democrat or Republican. And back then, you know, there was a kind of regular order to things. People talked to each other. I was friendly with the Republican staff. I was I was on the, I, I uh, was his chief counsel on, on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, I had friends who were across the aisle. We worked out legislative solutions together. We you know we fight like cats and dogs over some things, but there was a you know fairly broad range of uh, legislative items that you could you could find some common ground on. 
conference committees met between the House and Senate. You'd hash things out. Now, I think uh, this is really, I think, the result it be- and began with Gingrich. And it's not just the politics of personal destruction, which he was emblematic of, but the consolidation and control by the leadership and the complete disregard for the members uh, in favor of a leader, uh, in his case, speaker-led House. And that bled over into the Senate. So McConnell manages the Senate much the same way. And I think it would be nice if you saw a return to the way the Congress operated in those days. I think it was it was more stable for the country. I think, uh, you know, yes, you compromise some, but but in the end of the day, the debate was was healthy, and usually it usually resulted uh, in achievement that was more permanent. You weren't you didn't have these kind of wild swings like we see with. Uh, all the effort of Obama made on climate and then Trump trying to roll it all back. But um, I have to say, I don't see that happening. So uh, because of my view that that we don't have, you know, a day, a week, a month to waste, we've wasted all that time, you know, from 1990 till the present. you know, we could have been doing things that were probably on a bipartisan basis and probably at a more moderate level that will put us in a position that is quite different than today. But now we really do have a crisis. And I think if Biden's elected, I don't see, um, I don't see the, you know, particularly if McConnell is back and leading the Republicans, even from the minority, I don't see him participating in a way uh, that is conducive to trying to find common sense solutions. So I think if Biden has a majority, he's just going to have to use it. And that might mean getting rid of the filibuster or using budget reconciliation where you can do that, which only requires 51 votes. But if, if, if he doesn't, I think he'll be faced with the situation Obama was faced with in 2011 after the 2010 election where the House just really wouldn't go along with anything that he wanted to do. Uh, and he spent endless hours trying to negotiate with the then Speaker John Boehner, who I think is actually kind of a reasonable guy, but Boehner couldn't control his firebrands. So he could never, uh, whether it was on immigration, on the budget, on other big things where maybe Boehner and Obama could have found common ground, Boehner couldn't bring his caucus along. So I think we're stuck with this pattern at least until, uh, uh, and I think, I, th- I actually also believe this, until Republicans uh, in Congress believe this is a, uh, a, a strategy that is going to doom us to the minority for a very long time. So we better change strategies. One of those firebrands has your old job, which is horrifying. <laughs> Meadows. Well, we had a uh, Senator Harry Reid on this podcast last year talking about the filibuster, making the case that that should be removed. And we've since seen Vice President Joe Biden hint that he might be open to that. So that's interesting to hear you also say. I want to dig a little deeper on Climate Power 2020, an organization that launched in May. You are a part of Mr. Podesta, and it describes itself as, quote, changing the politics of climate by putting Trump on defense and pushing candidates to speak out. So we're in the middle of a pandemic, an economic crisis. Why throw your efforts, your name behind this particular initiative? Why is climate still top of the agenda in your view? It it was a big issue in the primary. Is it still as big of an issue just given everything else that's going on? Well, you know, there was a lot of debate inside the Democratic Party and amongst Democratic primary voters, and they still maintain uh, it's it's still of quite a salient issue for uh, for for Democrats and and you know Democratic voters more broadly. I think it's also a very popular issue amongst independents. Uh, but the reason we're doing this is, as I said, I think that we literally have now. 30 years to move the economy from one that's still more dependent on fossil fuels than not to one that's net zero. That is that we have essentially 
are taking as much CO2 out of the atmosphere as we're putting into it and other greenhouse gases. Um, and if we're going to do that, we need action. And it is my view and has been my view for a long time that uh, what campaigns do, what they focus on, what candidates promise is, in fact, what they do when they get into, if they are successful, what they do when they get into office. So drawing attention to the climate crisis, I think, is critical if we expect action on the climate crisis in 2021. I think the other thing that we have found through the course of the spring is the public understands that there's a kind of harmonic with the COVID problem. That is, when you don't listen to experts, when you ignore the science, when uh, you uh, operate on whim rather than a plan, uh, when you're willing to risk public health in, uh, to help your cronies and your friends, in Trump's case, by putting fossil fuel lobbyists in charge of the EPA, the Department of Interior, etc., and you're rolling back public health protections, uh, which manifest themselves in these tremendous public health disparities that we see by race, that th there's very much a kind of pattern that we need to break. We need to break it in terms of racial inequality. We need to break it with respect to public health. We need to break it with respect to COVID, but we also need to break it with respect to climate. And that uh, producing good content, explaining that story, getting candidates to embrace it, embracing uh, strong goals and practical paths towards getting to those strong goals is very much in the interest of the country. And that's why we started this you know, project, which an old friend of mine, Lori Lotus, who came from Apple, she before that had worked in the Obama administration and before that uh, at the Center for American Progress, where, which I founded, has come back and put together a really great team of people. And what, again, what we just released a bunch of survey research, big survey. And I think what you see is, I think two things. One, people want the solutions. They want to see the investments because that's part of getting the economy restarted in a good way and with downstream effects. And it's particularly important with respect to energizing young people in this electorate, in this election. So, you know, we have put together terrific advisory committee and uh, that spans the center to the left. And I think everyone's working well together, committed to trying to get that story in front of the American people. Hopefully we'll have success with Biden, who just, as you guys know, and, and did your podcast on put out a very far reaching climate plan. But I think it's also important that Senate candidates be talking about it, House candidates be talking about it, down ballot candidates be talking about it. And, you know, um, the action for the last four years has really been at state and local level. So I think they get this. They know the power of it. But we need to we need to continue to educate the American public. Well, it's interesting to see the polling you put out showed that it found that 71 percent of voters nationwide support bold climate action. And apparently 69 percent of battleground voters supported bold climate action, according to this survey. And then so to see, you know, the Democratic Party actually push on this really trust these numbers, not just do it because it's the right thing to do and beat the drum to shift public opinion, but actually then bake it into the platform in a real way because it is resonating. It just gives everything a little more teeth, I think. Politics is about friction. And this is, I can't, with the exception of the pandemic, I can't think of a place where there's more friction between Joe Biden's views and Trump's views. And so it's a joined issue. They're going to fight about it. You know, uh, Trump is going to say that he's going to take your hamburgers away if you let him into office. I don't think the American public buys that. Uh, but, you know, it'll it'll be good. We'll have this debate. 
Well, another one of the issues that you took up uh, at Climate Power 2020 is this Facebook oversight issue. And I want to get into it because it's an interesting approach to this whole climate discussion. Mother Jones, e News and other outlets have talked, have reported on the issue of Facebook's leaky fact checking operation, as it's being described. And it's allowing climate change deniers to, according to Climate Power 2020, circumvent fact checkers and spread misinformation meant to mislead readers about the reliability of climate modeling. So it sounds like a wonky issue on the face of it. Why is this something that you're really uh, going after and making a priority? Well, first of all, step back a little bit. Facebook is a cesspool of disinformation. And if you look at the audit they did on civil rights and hate speech uh, just last week, their own auditors uh, found that, as Sheryl Sandberg likes to say, they could do better. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's just, it's just, uh, it's, uh, it's something that if if you don't hold them to account, it just gets worse and worse. With respect to climate, um, they've created a gigantic loophole in their fact-checking operation. They use a group called Science Feedback, which is made up uh, of, which is part of uh, the International Fact-Checker Network, IFCN, which is credible. They use good scientists. They look at at information that's being posted. They tag it if it's misleading or if it's false. That process tends to really slow the spread of the information. People actually don't like to spread lies to their friends. And so when you let people who are uh, posting uh, to their Facebook pages the fact that this that the information is not trustworthy, that it's in, in fact false, they tend not to do as much. And people reading it tend not to read as much. Um, and so that's the theory. And uh, Facebook claims that they have set up a fact-checking operation using using different people like, like science feedback. Uh, but then they created this giant loophole that says, we'll, we'll take climate science and we'll put it in a category of opinion. Well, global warming is a fact. <laughs> and a lot of the uh, uh, information that is being put forward in this, in so-called opinion pieces are outright lies, disproven by the scientists. So we called them out on it. Uh, we did it by going to a woman who co-chairs their oversight board, who was herself a climate champion, Hella Thorning-Schmidt. She was the former uh, prime minister of Denmark. And when she was the prime minister, she was a great climate champion in their country and in the EU. But we got back the fact that evidently this so-called oversight board, which they announced 19 months ago with great fanfare to police the policy, has decided it's not going to meet till after the U.S. election. So, so much for that. So people are continuing to press. Press. There's been good reporting uh, by Popular Information, by any Daily and others. Heated. Now the New York Times uh, about what's really going on there, and they and their excuses are really pathetic. So I think it's important. Uh, one of the things we're we are trying to do is make sure their own employees, <laughs> who are sensitive to the question of climate change know what their leadership is doing. Yeah, and just today, I think Climate Power released a, a report pointing to popular information and heated reporting that a fact-checked article that went viral was actually, uh, the fact-checking was removed. And so there seems to be some inconsistencies around how Facebook is treating this and, and when they mark something as fact-checked or, or questionable and when they market fully as opinion. So more to dig into there, and we'll link to some of those those stories in our show notes. Well, they had uh, like one of the assertions in that uh, in that so-called opinion article is that climate change is not making natural disasters worse. Well, if you look out the window, you know that's not true. Uh, but they, you know, they removed the fact check on it. Uh, and, you know, their excuse is, because the Daily Wire put the fact check behind their paywall. <laughs> so you can, the information go, you know, continues to flow unchecked unless you subscribe to the people who are lying to you 
in order to see the fact check. I mean, it's ridiculous. And that article for reference was written by Michael Schellenberger and published in the Daily Wire, as you noted. So the last issue I want to touch on as it relates to Climate Power 2020's platform is the issue of government assistance for the fossil fuel industry. So we know from data released by the Trump administration and reported by the AP that some 4,800 fossil fuel companies have received 2.5 billion, up to potentially 6 billion in paycheck protection plan loans to date. And that range is because the specific loan amounts are not released, but somewhere between 2.5 and 6 billion. Combined with other government support, including $2 billion in additional taxpayer funds going to 40 big oil and gas companies, Climate Power 2020 claims that the total known assistance to oil and gas companies is more than $8 billion since the pandemic started earlier this year. Many of these companies were struggling prior to the pandemic, and some have sought to pay off debts with government loans that existed again from earlier dates. And some reports show that companies haven't actually retained any employees with the funds that they were given. So I'm curious to put to you, what level, if any, is right to give to fossil fuel companies? They currently do play a role in our economy. Uh, Should they have received nothing? Should there have been some green riders attached to this funds? And how do you expect this issue to be treated going forward? Well, look, I think you could have tailored relief to the to the people who are working in the sector and who have real needs that, you know, the the, the price drop has, has caused production to drop. People have lost their jobs. Targeted relief to those people is, is one thing. Instead, the way this program works, and we, by the way, we haven't seen the results of the Fed program because they haven't been released yet. They're still to come, the so-called Main Street Lending Program, which will even perhaps be even bigger than than what uh, we've seen to date. What we've done is we've bailed out uh, a lot. These companies were way over leveraged. They they were betting that oil would stay over $100 for a long time to come. They had banks lending them money without any ability to earn a return on that money. For the last 10 years, they've been net negative in cash flow. This is particularly true in the in the fracked oil side of the business. Fracked gas is a little bit different. But in the fracked oil business, they made a lot of bad decisions. They're way over leveraged. They were not going concerns with the price of oil being where it's settling out. And what we're doing as taxpayers is, are we bailing out the employees? No. We're bailing out their bankers. We're bailing out their uh, executives. A bunch of them, just before going bankrupt, paid enormous bonuses to their you know, top executives and then go into bankruptcy. And so who, gets, who else hold, ends up holding the bag? Taxpayers. So I think it was it was crazy the in in the in the Fed program I mentioned uh they they the oil and gas industry successfully lobbied to loosen the restrictions so they could get money flowing to that sector their original criteria because of this balance sheet problem because they were so over leveraged wouldn't been eligible for the Fed loans but they got that changed with a lot of pressure from uh, Republican uh, senators in particular. And, you know, so we'll see what happens. And in, in the meantime, the taxpayers are holding the you know wrong end of the stick. And in the meantime, we've actually seen clean energy jobs uh, be lost en masse. So have fossil fuel jobs, but uh, clean energy companies are still looking for some more government support, having lost roughly half a million jobs since March, according to the organization Environmental Entrepreneurs. And I think Climate Power's analysis puts it closer to one million jobs lost due to other uh, Trump-related policies affecting the clean energy sector. Well, Trump himself has intervened personally to stop any relief to the clean tech sector. And, you know, uh, I've heard uh, Speaker Pelosi wax on eloquently about how much people tried to get some of that into the earlier packages. And at the very end, Mnuchin had agreed and Trump vetoed it. Yeah, do you think we'll see something, uh, John, this time around that's different? Because that's actually been a, a, hard, a large focus for us working with several clean energy companies, and that would include generation as well as EVs and, and, and infrastructure. Do you think uh, Pelosi or, or Democratic leadership in the House 
will push harder or, or use a more sort of firm posturing to, to get some of that done in the next bill? I don't, I mean, I think they're trying. I think they put more into the infrastructure bill, uh, including the extension of the, of the tax credits. But I don't see the Senate really taking up the infrastructure bill. I think uh, the House leadership think there's some chance of that. But the infrastructure bill that just passed before the 4th of July House included a forward lot of that. It'd be good to see that in the in the COVID relief bill, but they can't. Um, you know, now they're they're bogged down because Trump wants to take the money for testing and contract taste, uh, contact tracing out of the COVID relief bill. So I don't I don't even know whether they're going to pass anything. Yeah, for all the talk of a green recovery, it does seem like uh, you know the actual prospects for something passing at least prior to the election is is virtually zero. Um, let's go back to you, Brandon, for some political uh, analysis. Well, I want to jump ahead. Uh, let's say you know the Biden campaign, climate twenty twenty are successful. Uh, we're in a Biden administration. And want to get John's thoughts, because he's probably the best person in the country to ask this question to, on how would you structure climate policymaking in a Biden administration? There's many different ways to do this. Um, you've seen all the models. Uh, you know, under the Clinton administration, you had a very strong, you know, Council on Environmental Quality. Uh, under the Obama administration, there was the Office of Energy and Climate Change that was started with Carol Browner, um, which had probably more power than the cabinet did, but not as much uh, as the National Economic Council or the National Security Council. Um, in the second term for Obama, you had you <laughs> as the senior advisor with a lot of, you know, credit and carried a lot of weight with the president who prioritized uh, this issue. So, you know, at the DOE, we were unique in that we sat on both the defense and non-defense side of the house. So we had exposure to all these different models where on the national security side, there's a very structured, uh, effective process. But on the domestic side, um, you can have this sort of fractured effort or many different models. What would you advise to be the best model structurally for climate policymaking in a Biden administration? So um, I have a particular perspective on this. Uh, I don't know it'll, that it'll prevail, but uh, I was around in 1993. I was there on day one with, with President Clinton uh, when the National Economic Council was created. And my view, and I think that was uh, inspired. I mean, I think it really helped him make uh, economic policy making uh, much clearer, brought it into and gave it presidential direction. He had a lot of success, obviously, uh, and produced a very strong economy as a result. I have argued that we need the same thing because of the scope and breadth of the climate crisis, because virtually every agency of government has some role to play, that uh, creating a national climate and energy council with an assistant to the president akin to the National Security Advisor or National Economic Advisor is the optimal model to get the most ambitious program both constructed and then implemented. Those councils are at the cabinet level with strong White House uh, guidance. And uh, the White House doesn't implement policies, the agencies implement policies, but it creates maximum accountability on what the agencies are up to. You know, I kind of created a, you know, a de, a de facto version of that because President Obama wanted it and he trusted me when, when I was in the White House. But I think actually formalizing it would give it more clout and standing. And I think it's a, it's, it's, It'd be smart to do. CEQ has an important role to play. The Office of Science and Technology Policy have, have a role to play. But the West Wing is where the action is. In Clinton's first term, Katie McGinty was the head of CEQ. She's a, she was a former Gore staffer. Gore had sort of the environment portfolio in the Clinton-Gore administration. So that CEQ was sort of more the de facto centralization. But it's if unless the chief of staff, the president, want that person to be driving, the cabinet is going to, by you know, sort of naturally going to say, 
I'll get back to you when the president calls me. So I think bringing it into the West Wing, having it directly responsible to the president, having that close identification with the chief of staff is a smart structure. And you don't need that many staff. You know, it's it you you can you can run this with with uh, by you know essentially borrowing the slots from the Domestic Policy Council, the National Economic Council, and a few other places. If if you had eight or ten people doing this, you could you could have a really tremendous program. On influence coming from the Oval Office, uh, as I rewatched The West Wing, that's really become to light for me. Mind you, I realize I'm on the line with the real Leo McGarry, so it's pretty cool. <laughs> Shane, over to you. I think you had a question. Yeah, I have another question digging a little deeper on the process side. So let's say for the sake of discussion that that, that happens, that, that your vision of how you'd set that up actually comes to be. The Administrative Procedure Act obviously has a, a lot of rules that need to be followed. The bureaucracy itself is so large that just moving regulations from the implementing agency through OMB and OIRA and all that good stuff. I know you've seen this a lot more closely than I have, and it, it stops a lot from getting done. Do you think it's possible when you said earlier, we just don't have time. I'd love to compromise. I'd love to have bipartisanship. We don't have time. Is it possible, even with the right plans and the right structure in place to do most of what you think is necessary just because the apparatus is what it is? Well, you know, Obama used executive authority to kind of the maximum extent possible. And we were on track uh, to meet our periscope, first of all. Uh, to get uh, fairly strong reductions by 2030. But we were also managing to what was then the target, which was two degrees C. What that meant in the United States is we needed to reduce emissions by 80% against 2005 levels. We have a new target now. There was a profound effect of the 1.5 report. The difference to the natural world and to food systems, water systems, human security, uh, migration, you know, is so profound between 1.5 and 2 that literally uh, Europe's adopted this, California's adopted it, New York's adopted it, the U.S. needs to adopt it. We need to get China moving down this track and India and others. We got to go to net zero. That is, that is a, that last 20% is a lot harder than the first 20%. And so, uh, in order to do that, you can't just do that with, in my view, with existing authority. You've got to have some support from Congress. You've got to be able to use, do the kind of investments that are going to require federal investments in, in R&D, in deployment, in procurement, et cetera, that Biden talked about last week. But you're also going to need some standard setting. Uh, he called for clean power standard of, uh, of um, zero emissions by 2035 in, in, his, in his speech last week. So you got to get Congress on board. It'd be better if you could do that on a bipartisan basis, but you got to do it. And so if it's got to be on a partisan basis, I say go for it. Well, one of our listeners asked, just to put a finer point on it, um, what are the top five things or two or three things that Biden could do administratively within the first hundred days on climate? If you're just going to be specific about it, what would you advise him to do right away? Well, he's got so he's got some, you know, I would break that into into domestic and international. Uh, I think on the domestic side, he's got to have a massive green stimulus. We're going to still have if you listen to CDO or the other neutral forecasters, we're going to have unemployment at 10, 11%. So we're going to have to, you know, we really haven't stimulated the economy. <laughs> we've, been, we've been providing disaster relief to people who have been crushed by, the, by, the, by COVID and by the mishandling of the COVID crisis. Uh, but we're going to have to get around to trying to get the economy moving again. And I think the first thing he needs to do, much the way uh, Obama did the Recovery Act, which, you know, Brandon helped implement, uh, that was the biggest investment in clean energy in the country's history. That happened in February, I guess, of 2009. 
So that's order number one, that investment package that is uh, that is absolutely critical. Uh, he talked about $2 trillion over four, over four years, up from his... Uh, Which would require congressional or congressional support, right? I think the most immediate thing I heard people saying was the federal procurement. That's something he could do without Congress, but I don't know how that ranks on your priority list. So federal procurement is, I don't think he can do as fast, but he can do, he certainly can do. I mean, there, that's a place where there are bodies that govern procurement standards and you have to work that through the process. That can be done in the first year, but probably not in the first month. And uh, I think he could get a big investment package, even with even if the Republicans manage to hold on. It's going to be a lot easier if Democrats are in power. But even if the Republicans manage to hold on, I think green infrastructure, Republicans like to spend money, too. And I think, you know, they'll they'll have a newfound appreciation for uh, being fiscal hawks. But they'll they'll you know, if the if the economy is what people are predicting, I think they'll still be willing to spend some money. Uh, then I think he's got to figure out what his authorities are under the Clean Air Act. He'll have to go back uh, and I think move uh, back towards the Obama standards on transportation, ultimately trying to move uh, through those infrastructure spendings on charging and, uh, and, and his manufacturing initiative to try to to accelerate the movement to, to electrification. The building standards he can lead on the federal side, but ultimately that's a state and local effort. So he's going to have to, that has to be, there's got to be a lot of organization around getting governors on board, getting mayors on board, et cetera. So if you want 100% clean buildings, you can incentivize that by having people update their standards. But it's, it's, um, you know, it's the federal government can't just tell states to change their build, building codes. That's that's a lot of work and it takes some time. Uh, and again, he's he's put a lot of emphasis on that. That's good for consumers. I mean, they save money doing that. And it's good for the economy because there's a lot of work retrofitting buildings, building new structures, making things more efficient. So I think those are the things he can do early. On the international side, he's got to rejoin Paris because Trump will pull out. He's got to show his commitment, I think, to uh, trying to be a leader again. I remember uh, Brandon knows my friend Todd Stern, who, you know, we we go way back um, and we worked together in the Clinton White House. But when he first went to a COP meeting in February 2009, he literally, when he walked in the door, they gave him a standing ovation because <laughs> it was the United States is back. And that was against Bush, who in retrospect looks pretty good <laughs> compared to Trump. Yeah, past the ITC. You got you to demonstrate your commitment to making investments, particularly for the poorest people who are going to get, who contribute the least to the problem, going to hammer the, the worst. Uh, changing international development assistance uh, so that it's aimed at resilience and building resilience in those systems so people have something to eat. And, safe drinking water, pressure the Chinese to stop building coal-fired power plants through the BRI. So there's a lot to do on the international side, too. In our final minutes, I want to turn to you again, Brandon. You had a question about election night. What could happen then? Over to you. So I have two scenarios that are keeping me up late at night. One is, you know, the rosy scenario, Biden wins comfortably, and we have 54 or 55 seats uh, in the Senate. We talked about the filibuster earlier. Do you actually think, you know, if McConnell obstructs, that the Democrats will have the guts to end the filibuster? And then my second scenario is if it's a closer election and Trump is narrowly ahead on election night, declares victory, they're still counting all the ballots. A couple of weeks later, when they're all counted, it's clear that Joe Biden won. Trump says, uh, the election was rigged. I told you these mail-in ballots were fraudulent. Uh, what do we do about that? Are we thinking about Nancy Pelosi said today, I'm, I'm curious if you agree with her comments. She said, you know, he's leaving uh, whether he likes it or not. Uh, but do we have a plan in place? And, and is there stuff we could do now to educate voters? Uh, or what, what are we going to do about that? Well, I think that 
if you look back a couple of months ago, pre-COVID, Trump's strategy was essentially to run on the economy, to use his financial advantage uh, to destroy Biden, and uh, in essence, energize his base. COVID blew that apart. I mean, I think his approval is so bad, even amongst, uh, certainly amongst independents, but even amongst Republicans. His rating on the handling of COVID-19 is down in the low 30s. That he has a new strategy, which is he's inflaming his base. He's got to suppress the vote. And then he's got to challenge the election results, the scenario that you're arguing, uh, you know, that you're positing. And I'm really worried about it. And a lot of people are, too. And they're and everyone's the lawyers are all hard at work trying to game out uh, those those various scenarios. There's litigation in more than two dozen states on uh, challenging the rules of voting, you know, where he has either Republican courts, as we saw the Supreme Court uh, deal a blow to uh, voting in Florida just this week or just at the end of last week, um, whether where he has judges, where he has secretaries of states, where he has governors, he'll try to maximally use those. I think he'll also try to intimidate voters. And if you see what's going on in Portland now, we'll see that happening around Election Day uh, and, you know, in cities across the country and particularly in places like Milwaukee, Detroit and Philadelphia unmarked federal officials driving around in unmarked vans at polling places. So I think this is really worrisome. Uh, I never thought I'd be saying this. I didn't say it in 2000. Uh, You know, I thought Gore got screwed, but nothing like, I think, what we can anticipate in this context. And the particular point you made, he's setting up, which is, by arguing about mail-in voting, which all of the uh, research shows doesn't advantage one party or another, but what he's doing is changing the composition of who is going to mail in their ballots and who's going to go to the polls. So Republicans trust mail-in voting less. They're going to have to show up, whether it risks their health or not. Democrats are more open to mail-in voting. But he will make this argument, which is the results on election day, if they're different than what the mail-in votes look like, that the election was rigged. And we'll, you know, we'll be fighting that out in the Supreme Court. The good news about winning big, if you have 46 or 54 Democratic senators, at least the people counting the Electoral College votes on January 6th will be Democrats in control in both houses. It's uh, like one one less thing to worry about. But um, I, I think there's tremendous concern. I know the, the uh, Biden campaign's worried about it. They're worried about his not being cooperative with the transition. I have to give this to President Bush because I ran the transition for Obama. They couldn't have been better to us. And I think that Dennis McDonough and the and the Obama team tried to be as helpful as possible to Trump. Trump kind of blew up his the people who were running his transition when it was led by Christie, Brown and Pence. So they didn't take much of an advantage of that. But that was that was the historic tradition. I, the person who helped me the most when I got started in the Clinton White House bar none, was a guy named Jim Sacconi, who had been George H.W. Bush staff secretary. I was taking that job over. He couldn't have been more gracious, more helpful. And, you know, I would have, I, I didn't even know what the job was when they offered it to me. I'd never heard of it. And that was the tradition that, that you know, Shannon and I were talking about. But I, no one expects it from Trump. So I think if they can make Biden's life difficult, they'll try to figure out ways to do it. On that cheery note, yeah, I'm, gonna say, well, I'm, I'm absorbing it for for a minute here because um, I, I do remember after the riots in the streets. <laughs> my gosh, I, I remember everyone talking about this in in 2016, and and of course, then it, it went the other way, and then and then my side had a little bit of fun with with challenging the outcomes of an election. But but more more on point, if uh, if you were if you were making the decisions, and it was it was binary, um, does 
Biden debate Trump or not? And by binary, I mean, it's not, well, if he releases his tax returns and there's a fact checker standing next to him, I mean, if it's just yes or no, would you let Biden debate President Trump leading in I November? I think Biden has said yes. Uh, I, I know from talking to his team that he really wants to debate Trump. He said yes to the commission debates. So if Trump shows up at the commission debates, Biden will be there. Uh, if Trump comes up with his kind of cockamamie, I'll only do it if we, you know, in front of a, you know, worldwide wrestling audience in some stadium someplace and uh, uh, in front of the boats, we got to do it 10 times in a <laughs> row. You know, then, you know, if you ask me, is it to Trump, is it to Biden's advantage to debate? My answer to that is seems to be doing fine in the basement, uh, being, <laughs> being, being like a normal person and letting Trump fight with Trump. Uh, but uh, but I think, you know, the real question is, if Trump accepts the commission debates, Biden already has done so, he will show up and he will debate him. And I think he'll do fine. I mean, we didn't actually get an answer on Brandon's initial question. Do you think Democrats actually will get rid of the filibuster? Not just talk about it. Will they will they do it? Oh, yeah, I forgot. Um, I think their first option is going to be reconciliation. And they will see how far they can get doing that. And so, so I think until that plays out, there still will be voices probably including my ex-boss, <laughs> you know, who came to the Senate in 1975, who will want to preserve the tradition. But I think in the end of the day, they will not uh, miss the moment. The country needs it. And uh, but that's just a prediction. I think they'll see what they can get done through budget reconciliation, which only requires 50, 51 votes, you know. I talked about Clinton's economic plan that passed with Gore breaking the uh, a tied vote in the Senate, fifty, you know, fifty-one to fifty, uh, and it passed by one vote in the House. But you know, so I think they'll go that route first, and if that doesn't yield them enough to feel like they're really making change happen in the country, then I think, as we've seen on the judicial side, the end of the day. They will not let the filibuster prevent progress. Yeah, I guess I was just gonna gonna say. I mean, do you think it's wise? I think during the Obama administration, none of us would have pictured the makeup of Congress in the White House in January 2017. And I'm completely unwilling to say that I have any idea what any of this is going to look like five years from now. So, you think it would be wise to take that that stop off there? You know, I think what's happened is. Um, we have ended up, uh, and, it, and, it, and it kind of goes back to this division. Probably started, we just lost John Lewis, a dear friend of mine. We worked together in the Carter administration. Probably, it, you know, it, 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 it began with the passage of the great civil rights acts in, in the 1960s. We have ended up with a parliamentary system with a supermajority rule. And think, and, you know, so every vote is a vote of no confidence from the party out of power. And I think it's very hard to have a functional democracy built on that system. So either we're going to have to, if, if, if the parliamentary nature of, you know, and McConnell said it on the eve of Obama's inauguration. My main goal is to make sure he's a one-term president. Resist, resist, resist. If that's the nature of things, then I don't. I think you can't. You can't have a system where everything gets filibustered. I'll tell you. I'll finish with one story. When I, again, when I started, I was on the Judiciary Committee staff. This is in '79 and '80. Reagan wins in '81. In '80 comes into power in 81. Republicans control the Senate for the first time in, I don't know, 30 years. The filibuster was used only to protect fundamental civil liberties and constitutional rights. 
And I sat on the floor of the Senate as a young staffer, night after night, all through the night, as, as senators got up and they actually debated, they actually filibusters, they took really meaningful cloture votes. And we saved the jurisdiction of the federal courts. We saved fundamental civil liberties, which were under attack. And so I think there's a proud tradition in the filibuster. Uh, and that wouldn't have happened with majority rule. But subsequent to that, it's become just a tool of opposition, of, of an attempt to stop the party uh, and a president from essentially doing the most fundamental things like, you know, doing the budget. You know, Gingrich and, and, uh, and Lott famously shut the government down. And, you know, we're off in a different world. So I, I just think probably the future of the filibuster is is that it's not it's not going to be around unless for some reason that fever change or breaks or the system changes and you don't see that depth of partisanship which I characterize as a parliamentary system. So to end, can we do one question that's on the minds of many Democrats? Who should Joe Biden pick as his running mate? Stacey Abrams. All right. We got a definitive answer. Okay. <laughs> no hesitation I think gonna, there. I think, I think he's going to pick Kamala Harris, and I'm fine with that. <laughs> but you asked me who I thought he should pick. Fantastic. Well, we have a million questions we could ask you. We really appreciate you giving us so much of your time. Uh, thank you, Mr. Podesta. This was a really great conversation. Thanks so much. This is really thank great. Thank you so much. Good to be with you guys. So that was a great conversation, you guys. I'm so glad that he gave us a full hour of his time. It's probably because he likes you, Brandon. <laughs> it was, uh, I mean, we could have gone on for hours, right? Oh, for sure. I, I had other questions about, you know, how a Biden administration would treat fossil fuels and actually whether or not it would curb production levels, something that the climate community has been asking for on the progressive side. So many other things. I know, Shane, you had some other questions for him. I guess, what, what would you have asked Podesta if you'd had another minute? What would be your top question? Honestly, I'd have to think hard about it. What I'm more interested in than the specific questions is just that politics is sort of a tricky field and it changes uh, all the time. And I've only been exposed to one generation of it. And I would just love to have conversations that would lead me to questions I never knew I wanted to ask about just things that happened 30 years ago, things that happened 20 years ago, comparing and contrasting, you know, not just policy, but but the political process, running campaigns, just a, there's a wealth of knowledge there that, that I just don't have access to on a regular basis. For sure. Well, we didn't have time to ask him what his say something nice would be if he had to say something redeeming about the opposing political party. Mind you, he did have some some nuggets in there that I think spoke to that. But to put it to you guys to wrap this up, what would be your say something nice? Uh, Shane, how about you go first? So mine is easy this week. It's um, John Lewis, the uh, recently deceased congressman and, and civil rights activist. Um, I often grow tired of politicians grandstanding and bloviating, typically talking about things that they don't understand. Uh, he is one of the rare cases where he fought for civil rights for his entire career, uh, not just you know as an elected representative, but also on the front lines in real life, which certainly means that whenever he has some, whenever he had something to say, it was very worth listening and learning. Um, and I think he'll be missed by our by our Congress. Did you ever meet him, Shane? I never, I never met him, um, and I, I wish I had. But I do, you know, I read articles like you guys do. I, I watch and read speeches and watch committee hearings, and usually I ignore everything um, just because I don't, I don't trust these people for the most part to do anything other than generate talking points. But I always you know, respected him and, and, and tried to listen and learn, even if it was something that I disagreed with, only because I knew he'd earned the right to have an opinion, uh, where so often many people have not, and they have them anyway. Right. And that wouldn't apply to anyone on this show. Um, Brandon, what would be your say something nice? My say something nice is about the current Secretary of Energy, Dan Briette. He did two great things this week. First, he released his um, tax draft. Tax returns? Oh. What? <laughs> I said tax returns. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, Trump should do that. He released his draft research and development roadmap for the Energy Storage Grand Challenge. This is very cool. It's a great initiative, and there um, you know, seem to be 
uh, advancing that initiative, took a meaningful step this week. And the second thing he did is he went to uh, Detroit uh, to General Motors, and he announced $139 million in funding for 55 projects to advance innovative vehicle technologies. Very cool. Yeah. Great week for the secretary. And actually a pitch for our past interview with Daniel Simmons at EERE at the DOE. And we talked to him. I was actually in Abu Dhabi with him. And we talked about the Energy Storage Grand Challenge and their whole philosophy. name dropping. I'm just name dropping. I don't care. It's also my birthday. So I can name drop if I want to. Happy birthday. You can flex (laughs) all you want today. Happy birthday. You can flex. Yeah. Well, great. Good episode, guys. I hope everyone listening enjoyed it. And tune in next week. We'll have, of course, of course, another uh, episode ready for you. Uh, thanks again for listening. And if you have a moment, as always, please head over to Political Climate on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and leave us a review. It really has been helping all the new additions there. So thanks so much. And we're also on Twitter at Polly underscore climate. If you want to tweet at us, I think that's it. Are we it. on Facebook? We actually are on Facebook. Oh. No climate denialism, though. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. <laughs>